0: We are into this short series on uh, love, sex, and relationships, and this is the second of four that we plan in this series to run through um, most of March, and this morning we're going to be thinking about the theme of marriage. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, um, I'm going to read from verse 26, it's page 2 in the church Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to go grab one from the table at the back, and if you don't own one, we'd love to, uh, for you to keep it, you're welcome to take that home with you. I want to read two passages. We're going to read Genesis 1.26, and then we're going to uh, glance over the the page at uh, Genesis 2.15 and read a chunk of that. And they're both separate accounts of the creation of mankind and of the institution, uh, God's God's, uh, creation of the institution of marriage. And so these passages are absolutely crucial for the biblical view on this matter. Let's read the passages and then we'll get into it. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And over in chapter 2, I want to read from verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last Is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before I get into this, I just want to say a couple of things very quickly. The first is that I feel like I have a lot to say this morning, which is a change from usual. So, um, (laughs) I, I'm going to be brisk, and in a sense that's why we have the Q&A after. Uh, those of you who are confused, need clarity, uh, want to ask questions about things I can't cover because there's just tons of stuff about marriage we're not going to talk about today. That's what the Q&A is for, so I encourage you after the service to stay around for that if, um, if indeed that, that would help you. The other thing I need to say to you is that I think some of the things I'm going to say today are going uh, to be offensive to some of you. And uh, I mentioned this to my wife a moment ago, and she says, "Well, how is that any different from normal, as well?" But um, I, um, I want you to sit when you, if and when you find yourself in disagreement with me on, on any point that I'm going to say. The question you must ask yourself at that point, if you are a Christian, if that's your, your, your basic premise here, that you're coming with the assumption that God gets to define these things. And I, I know that some of you are exploring. That's fine. Um, maybe you get a, a really helpful window into the Christian mind and worldview. But if you are a Christian, you've got to ask yourself, does my disagreement spring from a conviction that arises out of the Bible? Or is it because of cultural assumptions that I've imbibed? Now, you will have gathered, if you were here last week, that the point of this series is to offer you a countercultural perspective on the issues of love sex and relationships. I mean Jeremy did a phenomenal job in outlining the biblical uh, dignity of singleness and of the celibate lifestyle as an offering to God. And that is profoundly countercultural. So we started on a good note there of offense last week, didn't we? And we're continuing in that vein today. So I want to just prepare you in that for that. Um, but at the same time, I believe with all my heart that the Bible offers the answers that actually resolve and solve so many of the problems and issues that we've seen in our day in relation to marriage and love and sex. And you must agree with me that we are in a very big mess in the world at large. So why we think the culture has a right view on these things still baffles me. I mean, it's it's a definition of stupidity, isn't it, to when something is broken, not working to carry on doing the same thing as though you're going to fix it. And so uh, the Bible offers a a very different point of view on these matters. Now, maybe that's a good place to start, the mess in the world at large. I was reading a book about um, these issues uh, last year, and um, a sociologist called Mark Regnerus outlined three phases that... Uh, of shifts in cultural perceptions on the issues of marriage. It helps explain why we've arrived where we are, uh, where, where there is so much, um, so much lack of commitment and, and where divorce is prevalent. He said, it, we came from what you can call institutionalized matrimony, which is the basic view, which I think has been held by most cultures through most of history in most of the world, which is that marriage is the fundamental institution that holds society together and that there are bigger issues at play than, than you and your, your personal interests. So uh, it, it, this view has its flaws, of course. You could be, end up in a marriage in which you didn't choose to be in. You could end up in a marriage that's loveless. But the basic assumption is you are committed to this for life, for the sake of society, that there are bigger issues at play here. You know, fathers could marry off their daughters just to get rid of them under that model. So we're not saying, I'm not defending it, I'm not saying it's the perfect picture, but that was one phase. And then we moved into the romantic view, uh, as the kind of, particularly on the back of the Victorian era and all the, the novels and media that began to erupt um, around the praise of love. And the romantic view began to take hold which is that that puts love at the center of marriage and particularly romantic or erotic love. And, of course, that didn't provide a particularly substantial or or solid foundation for marriages to last. And uh, and then we moved more recently. With bigger issues at play around cultural transformation, we moved into a third phase, which was defined by a man called Anthony Giddens about three decades ago. He he called it the pure relationship. Um, Some people call it confluent love. And here's how one uh, lady defines it, um, Eva Elluz. She says, it's the contractual assumption that two individuals with equal rights unite for emotional and individualistic purposes. They unite for emotional and individualistic purposes. What this means, in a sense, is You no longer live to serve the institution of marriage. A relationship or the the relationship exists to serve you. And for as long as it serves you as an individual, you stay in the relationship. In the moment, it no longer gratifies you emotionally or in terms of your life ambitions. As an individual, male or female, then the relationship is as good as dead at that point. This is why it's often seen as a two-way door in and out of relationships. and Not just marriage, of course, but also long-term sexual relationships and cohabitation and all the rest of it. It's because of this idea that they call confluent love, that at the root of it is the Western view of the individual, your rights, your ambitions, your desires, your personal happiness being the chief end of your existence. And that is a massive and radical shift in terms of the ground of what establishes relationships? Confluent love. Just um, my wife is at part of an online forum for some some doctors, and uh, she she showed me she showed me a, a post by an on, anonymous female doctor who described the situation in her marriage like this. She says. Um, she talks about how they come to this financial 50/50 split in their relationship. She says, once we'd had children, I dropped a GP session for childcare and gave up my day off for childcare. My husband calculated a percentage that my income had dropped by and pays this in as extra. We have a joint account for all things, and if we go over what we've paid, in this is split 50/50. What we go over. She talks about the, the, the way that she carries most of the, the the role now with childcare, does a bit of GP work. He's earning a six-figure salary, and she says, based on his calculation, he'll pay in a thousand more in the joint account, whilst I'm grateful he's paying this in. It seems unfair that he isn't willing to contribute anymore. So we end up with a similar amount at the end. Am I being unreasonable? She says, maybe I'm jealous. He's going to end up with lots of savings. And I read this, and I scratch my head, and I think, what what the heck is going on here? Now, I, I think it's tragic at the same time, but what she's describing is a situation in which two individuals are pursuing their own separate desires in life, with a certain amount of common ground between them, which is raising children and having a little pot of common finances. And it's so radically departing from a traditional and certainly from a biblical view of marriage. And I want to go, I want to go hard into what I think is, is going on here. This explains a lot of the mess around us. It explains the breakdown of the family as a central unit that holds society together. And there have been unbelievable untold consequences on the back of that. Just thinking about preparing for the anxiety talk this week, there is an epidemic of anxiety. Do you know that many people who suffer anxiety do so because of experiences of divorce when they were children? That's just an interesting aside, an untold consequence of the erosion of marriage and of the family. The cheapening of sex is another issue here. By calling it cheap, what that means is to say that you can have sex without responsibility in our day and age. It's been described as, you know, as easy as ordering a takeaway when it comes down to a matter of swiping left and right on an app. And that the cheapening of sex is because each of us now is pursuing our own ends and desires rather than living to serve another person's. The weakening of the bonds of commitment. You look at the church and ask yourself the question, is the situation any better within the church? Is it any better in our church? Is it any better in among Christians at large, and there's probably a whole litany of issues that you could point to, but the three that jump out to me when I consider the situation that we're in are delay, perfectionism, and idolatry when it comes to the issue of romantic relationships. Delay is certainly an issue in the world at large, and for some reason is also part of the thing that's going on in the church, that people are delaying adolescence more and more. And this isn't just my opinion. This is also something that sociologists talk about. Um, that, and, and, and what's often given as a reason is I'm having fun. I don't want to settle down because I'm having fun. Which tells you a lot about what people think the purpose of life is, doesn't it? And so, you know, you typically for those who are not Christians, that that having fun, part of that definition of having fun is also having sexual fun and experimentation with as many Partners as as possible for some people, not all for all, of course. And and I, I begin to wonder why why is it that we're also seeing this phenomenon in the church? Why is it that we're delay why this is a problem, isn't it? That we're delaying adolescence and that we are not willing to step into responsibility. Here's another problem: is the problem of perfectionism. Uh, increasingly, and I think I experienced some of this myself when before I was engaged and I've certainly seen it many times in talking to to people and particularly young men uh, that that we have this you know brought up as we are with the belief that we can choose our life path and choice is everything. You know you can choose your career now. You didn't used to necessarily be able to you can choose your location you can choose your gender. Given that choice is now the governing (laughs) dynamic of the age in which we live, the issue of choice when it comes to considering who your life partner is has become utterly paralyzing for people. Think about how hard it is just to choose a restaurant when you're on holiday, right? You scroll through TripAdvisor and then you choose one and then you're immediately disappointed the minute you arrive because you think there's probably something better down the road and I missed out on it. That is the exact mentality that we're seeing going on in relationships. People are, are afraid because of a perfectionist ideal of what a relationship is meant to be and do. And this leads into the third problem I see, which is that of idolatry. That people have put on the relationship such a weight, and I'm talking particularly about Christians, put on it such a weight of expectation of what it's meant to be and do for you, that it is unable to bear that weight. So singles look on with with a yearning for marriage as the thing which is missing in their lives and discover that, you know, and they feel that their life is incomplete without it. And married people make marriage a central thing in their lives and so become withdrawn and isolated and, and, and encapsulated in their, their own desires as a couple. And it's the idolizing of the marriage relationship as though it in itself is the purpose of your life. These are some of the problems I wanted to lay out at the start. And all of this speaks to me of a basic confusion around the purpose of marriage and that's what I want to address today. I want to speak into the purpose of marriage. I believe that the Bible shows us that the purpose of marriage, the reason for which God created marriage, was to accomplish his mission in the world. And that if you settle that in your heart, that is good news for all of us. It's good news for the single person. Because when... You know, belief, the desire, or more more fundamental in your order of priorities than the desire to be married is a desire to do God's will. When you've settled that, then the question of whether you marry or not becomes secondary to that. You're here for his purposes, not making marriage the end goal in life. It's also wonderful news for for married people because many people enter marriage putting on it, as I said, the weight that it cannot bear in the belief that this is the thing I need to satisfy my life. And when you put that kind of weight on marriage, it cracks. And as soon as it's not pleasing you in the way you think it is, you you begin to question whether the marriage was right or not. But when you have beneath it a more fundamental, common desire as a couple that you are here to fulfill the work of God in the world, on top of that you can build a, a powerful, dynamic and wonderful loving marriage. So I want to speak into this idea that marriage exists to fulfill the purposes of God for his mission in the world. And I think that takes, certainly from what I, my understanding of these, these passages in Genesis, I think it, we can find three main expressions or three main ways of fulfilling the mission of God through marriage. And I want to outline them for you. Here's the first. What does it mean to say that marriage is mission? It means, first of all, that marriage is about Doing God's work. Now, this is, a, this is a huge shift. You need to think hard and bear with me on this. Let's start with you as an individual. God created all of you as individuals with a purpose. You are here on planet Earth to do God's will. And we see that in the creation of Adam himself. Adam, in distinction from the animals, the animals just seem to exist because they exist, because they're just an expression of God's creativity. Adam does not exist for that reason. Adam exists to work. Initially, as a kind of gardener slash zookeeper. But, But in a sense, if you understand the biblical picture of what's going on here, he's actually a king in the garden. He's there to bring order out of chaos, justice, peace, and a shalom to God's creation. A huge dignity is rested on his shoulders. He's basically doing God's work as God's vice-regent. You start with that assumption that your life has purpose and that the purpose that it has is is given to you by the living God. I think this this is clear even into the New Testament. Think about this verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about death and resurrection. So after Paul's contemplating the end of your life, the great purposes for which you exist, he rounds it off with this Therefore, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, when you contemplate on the shortness of life and the fact that there is a certain hope of resurrection, what are you alive for in this moment to abound in God's work, to do his will? Now, that will take infinite expressions depending on what it is that God has called and equipped you for as an individual. And I don't only mean, of course, the work within the church. It's much more expansive than that. But you're here for a purpose just as Adam was. But after making man, God saw a deficiency in his creation. When you read through the creation account of each of the days unfold and God forms and fills his creation with all kinds of creatures. He, said, he says he, he reflected and saw that it was, good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Five times until the sixth day when he makes Adam and it says it was not good. We saw it there in, in chapter 2. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, you've probably read this and thought that he was talking about the, potential, the, 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 the problem of Adam's loneliness It's not good that he's alone in the sense of he will not experience a fulfilled life as a lonely person. I think that is a part of what's meant here. But it is not the fundamental reason that God says it's not good that the man should be alone. It's actually talking about his vulnerability, incompleteness, inability to do God's work, to fulfill God's mission as an isolated individual. How do I know that? Look at the whole sentence. 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God doesn't say, I'll make a mate. He doesn't say, I'll make a friend. He doesn't say, I'll make a soulmate or a lover or any other word that could describe that kind of special romantic relationship. And all of them have validity. But he rather says, I'll make a helper. And please don't. Don't allow that word to conjure up in your mind you know, like images like, the, you know, like we have the expression for the help, as in people who are kind of maids or servants in the household. That's not what's meant by it. The word is used of God himself in the Old Testament, and particularly in context of battle that God comes to help his people. It's of powerful support. What does it then look like? for a man and a woman to be on mission together, for God to have created the man and then created his helper so that they could accomplish a purpose together. And the reason I think why we don't see this, why we don't understand that the basic reason that God has made marriage is so that you can be co-laborers for him to help each other further God's purposes in the world, I think the reason we don't see this has, there's a lot of historical explanations going on here. We've, in the recent, like the last sort of 150 years or more, we've seen the, what you can call the atomization of the household. And what that means is that whereas the household used to be an expansive thing that, that, that had influence in all kinds of spheres of life, which I'll explain to you in a moment, the household has been reduced down to something much smaller. It all began with the Industrial Revolution. When people began to go out of the home to go to work. And so immediately, the productivity of the home was separated from its other purposes. The man went out to work, and the home became something reduced. And then, of course, the children went out to school, and the home was reduced even further. And eventually, what you ended up with was the 1950s picture of the housewife at home, with all her automated machinery, feeling very unfulfilled in her existence and for very good reasons. Everything that invested dignity in her existence as a wife and as the one who ruled a household under her husband's authority was bled out of the picture of what it means to be a wife, and she ended up with a limited, narrow, 2D existence. And of course, on the back of that, we've seen a huge backlash. But where it's taken us now is, you no, know, the wife must have equal rights and therefore her, her desires, aims, and mission is, a, is as valid as the husband's, except they seem to be in competition with each other most of the time. We don't see them sharing a common purpose. We don't see marriages having a greater mission than the marriage itself. And the home the home itself, which in the Bible is the center of operations through which God allows his kingdom rule to be extended, has been reduced down to the place where you relax, enjoy Netflix, eat food, and rest to go out and do the real stuff somewhere else. But in the Bible, the home, the household, is a business business it's a charity, it's a school, it's a community hub. It has these expansive and influential purposes that touch all of life. This is, by the way, if ever you've read um, the last chapter of the book of Proverbs about the, the, the Proverbs 31 wife, and you've scratched your head and thought, how is this woman even possible? it only makes sense within this vision of the household. Because what's described there mainly is around her her ability as a leader and a businesswoman and um, somebody who has these kind of this, this power at her, in her arms he even talks about her having mighty, stri- strong arms. And I'll just read you a few verses. It says, she, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. This is not for her Instagram feed. This is so that she can be effective in her labor. And then it goes on and talks about. She says she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to the, her, uh, reaches out her hands to the needy. It talks about her faith. It says, it says she has strength and dignity, are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She's got a profound trust in the greatness of God. It talks about her husband. Says her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. He's kind of a magistrate and a businessman at the uh, in the city. And says so she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of is on her tongue. She teaches everyone around her what it means to be a godly person, what it means, what righteousness looks like. And you see this expansive vision of a household in which the two, the husband and the wife have a complementary <coughs> partnership. They're not atomized in their, in their separate individual passions, seeking their own desires, and then with a little like a Venn diagram, a little bit of crossover in the middle where they raise kids and relax together and eat food and maybe share finances. It's not that at all. They're more like, the image is more like Two soldiers on a battlefield, back to back, watching each other's back, in a common mission but with difference of perspective. His vision is mainly outside the household. Hers is mainly inside the household. But together, they further the kingdom of God in this beautiful vision of a a household in which the two partners are not in competition, but they, they believe in the greater purposes of God that are being worked out in their lives together. Just contrast that in your mind with what I described at the beginning of this confluent love. How the home is diminished to a small part of life where the purposes cross over for leisure and so on. But basically, couples are in competition today, aren't they? And resenting one another and clawing at one another for differences of responsibility and differences of rights. And everything about this is broken. Because they don't share a common mission, a common purpose, and that is not invested in them by the living God. It's hard to know how you can recover it, I suppose, this, this image I'm trying to paint for you. But it has to begin, really it has to begin when you're a single person, but it also has to then be built in into your marriage with a passionate, this is your common ground, it's not about common interests. It's not about having this, this, the same love of the same foods and the same, the, same, um, you know, the same enjoyments of the types of holidays you want to go on. That, no, the most important fundamental common ground which you need to share as a couple is that you are here to fulfill God's purposes. That's the mission of God. To do his work together. And you get married because of the conviction that you'll be more effective together than you are apart. Now, obviously this speaks into the question of who you should marry. Because when you're considering marriage to someone else, if you are not married already, the first question you ask yourself is, do they want the same things? Do they want to please God with their whole life? And if the answer is no, then you steer clear. Because what kind of a marriage is that going to be if you don't have a common purpose and a common mission? When you find somebody whose heart, hopefully like yours, is basically about wanting to do the will of God, it doesn't matter what incompatibilities you have elsewhere, you will find a way to find joy in one another, I believe. Marriage is about doing God's work. Here's the second thing marriage is about multiplying God's kingdom. Here's a question I want to ask you. How important is it, do you think, for a couple who are married to desire to have children? What's the moral imperative there? I was in a forum about five years ago, um, a discussion forum where we were discussing matters relating to love, sex, and relationships, and I I found myself in some pretty choppy waters out on a limb um, in disagreement with nearly everyone in the room. And one, one, I was in particular heated debate with one man who was sat across from me. And uh, he asked me the question. You know, he was, he was kind of taking us down a road of, you know, trying to basically figure out what I think marriage is about. He, said to, he asked me the question, do you think it's sinful for a Christian couple not to want to have children? And I was already angry at that point. So all the nuance of, of, you know, the way I could have answered it went out of my mouth and I just said, yes. <laughs> and um, there was a sharp intake of breath across the room, understandably. Um, it is a nuanced question, but I think a lot of the reasons why we, we recoil at that answer is because of what I've been describing to you as the individualism of our age. If you enter marriage with the basic assumption that it's there to serve you in your own personal goals and happiness, then suddenly the question of children takes on a different slant, doesn't it? They may or may not help with that goal. Depends on you as an individual, doesn't it? And so we see three fruits that have come out of this, this picture of the individual in, modern, in the modern world in relation to children. The first is that people think that if children conflict with your life goals, you choose you instead. In other words, if, you know, if your vision of the happy life is wintering in the Alps, ha- and enjoying the ski season every year, or maybe summering in the Maldives, and, you know, or potentially you, know, you think about the cost to your career success that children might have, suddenly children become a huge inconvenience, unless you deeply desire to have them. But they can become a convenience to your greater desires, what your picture of the happy and fulfilled life is. And this is why we see many couples increasingly opting to have no children or certainly fewer children, because it massively impacts on your life and lifestyle. Another result we see from this is that if children are seen as a commodity in a consumeristic age, so one person says, mm, "Don't fancy that. Don't think it necessarily adds anything to my life." As a consumer, another person says, "No, I think I definitely need children in order to have a to, to have every th- possession in my life that will make my life fulfilled." And so, you know, some one person's childless, another person will go to any length to have children, however unethical that might be and I I speak here particularly about so much fertility treatment in our day, is basically systematic abortion and the killing of children in order to finally land on a successful one. Now, I think there are ethical ways to do fertility treatment. It's very difficult. But we do not consider the consequences because we think, my desire trumps all other considerations here. This is a commodity that I want to gain in my life. The rise of surrogacy is another part of this bigger picture, which, you know, the consequences of it are still unknown. And the the, the tragedy of someone carrying a child to childbirth and then being separated immediately from that child, what that does to the child, what that does to the mother, the, the, uh, the birth mother, There are questions here, but we actually sweep the questions aside because the greater reality is you are a consumer and you will have what you pay for. A third factor here is, of course, that I already hinted at, the rise of abortion on demand, which, when you boil it down, is doing violence against those who would hinder your vision of a fulfilled life, which happens to be your own child. Now I understand there's huge tragedy around this and often heartbreak but we cannot resolve that if it's been your experience by simply sweeping simply sweeping it under the rug it has to be brought to God in repentance Now when we consider the biblical picture about marriage and multiplication here's my contention That the desire, not necessarily the reality because it's out of your power, but the desire to have children and the will and the act to have children is not optional, but is part of the biblical vision of what you were put in a marriage for. It's there right at the start. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Why? Because this is how God intended his kingdom to expand, his rule. His dominion on the planet through through us. Now, we've got to be clear here. We're not talking about the mere act of reproduction. Which, if you are fertile, is the easiest part. We're rather talking about the biblical call to raise up children who love Jesus. Remember when Jesus... Pointed to the greatest command. He said, "It was this one. It's called the Shema. Shema Israel. Uh, The the Hebrew: uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might." And he says, and the next line in Deuteronomy 6 is this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Right at the heart of what it means to be a man or woman of God is multiplication. And if it means you're in a marriage, it means, it means instilling that same love for God in the children that God gives you as part of the expansion of God's kingdom on planet Earth. Children are a blessing, but only if they love God the way you do. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb will reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior and are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. How full is a full quiver? I don't know. Uh, Maybe we'll find out, won't we, sweetheart? Um, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but not, not a blessing if you neglect to teach them to love the Lord, in which case they become more like a curse. Not that the child in itself is a curse, but the experience, the experience can feel that way. So the biblical picture is God gave marriage to do his work and to Multiply. What if you don't like kids? You don't have to like kids in general. You just have to love the ones that God gives you. That's all you're called to do. I know plenty of people who have no interest in kids. As soon as they have them, they love them. I mean, it's weird not to, right? So why, you might be asking yourself the question, why is this such a vital mandate within marriage? And I think, I think it becomes clearer for us as New Testament Christians When we put this verse, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, when we put that verse alongside the great commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Scholars have long recognized those two passages as twin pillars that stand side by side in the Old and the New Testament. At the beginning the commencement of two different covenants, one under Adam, one under Christ, both conveying the same basic desire that God wants his kingdom rule to fill the earth. One of them is given primarily through the act of childbirth, the other one through the act of making disciples. But they are porous definitions. They meld together. I think this explains why when Paul's talking about, you know, as a single man, his influence upon younger believers, he uses parental language. Galatians 4, he says, my little, he talks about my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It feels like a dad trying to raise up godly kids and all the pain that goes with that. 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Christians, the image in the New Testament is that when you become a Christian, you're born again or you're adopted into the family and you're nurtured on pure spiritual milk. The, the analogy is, you know, there's a reason why these two things are side by side. The family that has children, the church that has spiritual children. And this is the implication why am pairing these ideas in your mind for those of you who have kids raising kids is likely to be the most effective way that you, you're a disciple maker they were they will Im, they will mirror you in many ways and your heart for god but also the flip side to it is that making disciples in the new testament picture of that is spiritual parenting which is especially important for people who are single or will remain single you can still be a parent in the kingdom and those who couples who are infertile it doesn't have to be a tragic thing if you understand the bigger picture of what this is about so we take an example in the new testament one of the most a couple who are mentioned frequently in the new testament are priscilla and aquila And they are honored because of their spiritual parenting dynamic in their marriage. We don't know if they had natural children. They're never mentioned. What we do know is that their marriage existed for the multiplication of the kingdom of God through spiritual parenting. So we see them in, I think it's Acts 19, with Apollos, who basically... is is a gifted preacher but only knows half of the picture of what the gospel is about. So they take him under their wings and they nurture him in the faith and then they release him as a matured believer and he's dynamic and powerful and effective as a preacher. But they were largely responsible as spiritual parents in his life. Then we see them in Ephesus and Rome having a church in their home, leading a church, parenting all these younger believers. This is the contrast I'm trying to lay before you. Some marriages are where the gospel goes to die. You think about this in a biological sense, you know, how sometimes, you know, you can have, it's possible, over time, surnames die out. You could be the last in your line. And if there's no fruitfulness, then the name dies with it. Well, sometimes that, that can be a picture of gospel impact. Some couples are the last in their line of those who got saved, and then, There's no impact beyond that spiritually. It's a spiritual barrenness. Because the couple have turned inwards. Because they are only interested in their own ends. That their marriage exists for its own, to serve itself, really. Some marriages are where the gospel goes to die. Other marriages are expansive and bring multiplying fruit. Partly through In accordance with God's generosity, the gift of children. And also, most certainly, through spiritual parenting. Disciple making. Which again brings us back to the question of what kind of person do you want to marry if you're single? Who are you going to marry? And here's the clue. Marry somebody who's like Jesus because your children are going to become like your spouse. It's inevitable. It's a disciple-making relationship. Marriage is about multiplication. Here's the third thing. Marriage is about displaying God's love. Everything I've described to you to this point might sound like a functional view of the marriage relationship, but here's the thing about God. What God does is never purely functional, is it? There's a lavishness to the way he works so he he could have made things much more boring than he did but i i you think about the expansiveness of his creativity there are stars in the universe that no one will ever see and will never be named you contrast that with you ever played one of those computer games where you run around the 3d ones and you always hit the boundary somewhere and you're like it feels you suddenly realise, you know, it reminds you that you're in a created thing. But the universe that God made is boundless. It would seem, or well, certainly it's beyond our comprehension to imagine its boundaries. And just because there are creatures that have gone extinct and are going extinct, which no one has ever seen or named, no one got to enjoy them. Why? Because that's just who God is. He's just, just lavish. He's just gratuitous. There's beauty in creation, which is just totally unnecessary for its existence. Think about a peacock tail. How does a peacock tail help a peacock? I, it doesn't. I mean, it makes it a target, doesn't it? But a peacock tail, I think, is there for our enjoyment. Hair on your head. It doesn't really serve much of a purpose, which is what I'm living by. But... <laughs> Why does God make you beautiful? Just because. Think about the beauty of a sunset. There's no functional reason for that. It's just because God is God. There's a gratuitous, lavish, generous, happy reality to his nature, which is reflected in everything he makes. Now, Think about the man on his own in the garden. The picture isn't right. He cannot express the joy and happiness of God in its fullness on his own. For simple reasons. There's no one to share a joke with. Now I imagine the first time he saw rhinos trying to mate, he must have laughed. I mean, it's just so... Cumbersome. It's like it's more ridiculous than a newlywed on their first night, right? And without being able to laugh at that, like there's less pleasure, isn't there, in just enjoying the creation and the ridiculousness and joy of the world all around him? No one to serve, no one to be served by. His existence is narrowed and unlike God's, actually, because God exists in communion as Trinity for all eternity. So to fulfill the image of God, God had to make male and female. I love how it's expressed in those verses we read. So God created man, it's a singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In other words, you as an individual bear the image of God, but also you and community bear the image of God. Both matter. This means that if God is love, then love is at the center of what it means to carry his image. I've been reading a book called Generation Me by a secular sociologist called Jean Twenge, who's just brilliant. I think she's amazing, her insights. And she talks about that. The problem in our age of the individual self pursuing their own desires as an individual, and particularly the problem of so called self esteem. She says, This is the dirty little secret of modern life. We are told that we need to know ourselves and love ourselves first, but being alone sucks. I just want to remind you she's a scientist, to my knowledge. I don't know that she has a faith at all. She's writing from data. Being alone sucks. Human beings need other people to be happy. This is just the way we're built. Yet say this at a cocktail party and someone will probably say, yes, sure, but it's better not to need someone. I've heard that one. That's codependent, the resident psychotherapy expert will say, and repeat the modern aphorism, you can't expect someone else to make you happy, you have to make yourself happy. Actually, you can expect this. Having a stable marriage is one of the most robust predictors of happiness. And for single people, having good relationships with friends and family predicts happiness. We gain self-esteem from our relationships with others, not from focusing on ourselves. Love is at the heart of God. Love only makes sense as essential to our being because we have a Trinitarian God. And love is praised all through the Bible. Set me as a seal upon your heart, it says in Song of Solomon. As a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This image that puts love at the center of what makes a healthy marriage, not in isolation from the other things I've mentioned, but as fundamental to marriage, is the biblical vision. Marriage, therefore, preaches about God's love in many dimensions. It tells us about God as a friend. The Bible tells us that God is a friend, and within marriage, we experience friendship like no other. It tells us about romance and attraction because the Bible shows us that Christ's love for us as the bridegroom is fierce and jealous. And at the heart of marriage is a fierce and jealous love. A possessive love for the other. It comes out in Adam's song, doesn't it? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And this is therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. This possessive, fierce, protective love is first of all modeled by God in the way he loves his people, and then built into marriage as a way of preaching the way God's love works. But most importantly, love preaches the, the love of God in its self-giving nature. The book of Ephesians tells us that Christ as the bridegroom gave himself up for her, the bride. He laid his life down so that she would live. So marriage love is preferring the other. Typically, um, romantic stories end at conquest, don't they? In Hollywood and in novels, they end at the moment of conquest. The biblical view of love begins there. And the love that the Bible shows us is the self-giving love that goes on in marriage to your dying days so that the most romantic picture of love is captured by for example the spouse who nurtures and sustains their other half despite them withering and dying they get nothing back but it's self-giving 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 that's like the love of Christ towards us It's like the couple who live into their 90s and then die within two days of each other because their life was oriented to the other person. Without the other person, they have no one to live for anymore. This is the way God loves us, and he built it into marriage. And so, friends, we find that the gospel is at the heart of marriage in every way. Firstly, in that we're part of a kingdom under Jesus' rule. And marriage is about working for that kingdom. About doing God's will. And marriage should make you more effective and better at it if God calls you to marriage. Secondly, we're part of a multiplying family. And marriage plays its part in that. Firstly, through having children. Then through being spiritual parents. And this last thing. That we're part of a love relationship. And marriage preaches what love is. It is really on that note that we're going to go into communion. It's here that we experience the self giving love of our bridegroom, of Jesus Himself. The bread and the wine preach to us what love is meant to look like within marriage and within the church because Christ puts us above Himself in front of himself and lived for us and died for us. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your head and let's pray. Invite the musicians to come up. Oh, Lord. We need for you to keep on reminding and showing us that we live for you, that we're here for your plans and purposes. So that we can look at all of life through that reality and shake off our cultural lenses that teach us that we are the center of the universe. I pray, Lord, that you would shake off confusion around marriage. Bring us to a settled, peaceful conviction about why we should marry, if we should, who we should marry. And what it should look like. So that all of our life and existence would declare and preach that you are Lord on your throne. And we live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.